amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Body 
you heard of religion. Heard of religion? You heard of purity and cleanliness that the God brings to earth? Well, I'm bringing it home to you from the wars. Because I've learned about purity under fire. Ah, purity under fire. Purify the nation. Purify the plantation. Purify the slaves. Purify our true love. Is your house too clean? Did you know that if your house is too clean, it may cause dangerous virus to grow? Use dirt. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. This brand was rated X by an all-white jury. Maudie May concludes this week with our look at Brand X. It's a rather unusual film, to say the least, which seems to skewer television tropes and politics of the time. Directed by Wynne Chamberlain, the film is set squarely in 1970 and stars an unusual mix of actors from Taylor Mead to Abby Hoffman to Candy Darling and more. The film got some solid reviews when it came out and then just kind of disappeared for a while. Now it is back with a vengeance. Rob, I'm very curious, what did you think of Brand X? It's interesting to watch because there are elements of it that I see in other places and other films, and I'll talk about that later. Uh, it is definitely of its era. I think that if you were a counterculture type in the late 60s, early 70s, this probably would have been one of those hip films you would have saw and would have been like, right on, man, because of that cast of you know two that you listed there being uh, Andy Warhol superstars. So if you were um, a fan of what Warhol was doing in his pictures and and also Abby Hoffman. I mean, come on, being Abby Hoffman. So uh, he also being in there, it uh, it definitely plays into uh, the zeitgeist of that era. And I think that it's it's um, satire for now seems a tad dated, but I think if you understand the politics and the time, it's quite good. I'm not sure if I understand the politics of the time enough. I felt very. I should be laughing here, maybe, but I'm not quite sure at times. And then other times it's like, okay, yeah, I get this. So I sometimes I don't feel like I'm hip enough to understand everything that's going on in the film. It, it almost seems like there's not deliberate jokes or punchlines so much. I mean, the one that I thought of when I was watching it, and obviously it's a different context, is is Putney Swope. When we talk about um, you know odd commercials and things like that, and sort of a satire of uh, advertising. I don't feel that there's like direct jokes. Like I think Bob Downey is much more like trying to hit you in the ribs at times and get you to laugh. I think here it's just about throwing a bunch of stuff at the wall and images together that to the director seem to make points more than laughs, at least to my mind. The one thing that comes to mind that is a joke that has the setup and the punchline and everything is completely subverted in the film. Like the guy who comes in and just like shows up and tells the rape joke. Well, you know, uh, there's this old maid that comes running up to this policeman uh, on the street and she says, uh, 
Well, I was just raped. I was just attacked. He tore off all my clothes, and he made mad, passionate love to me. So the officer says to her, but madam, just when did all this happen? Thank you, Aldra. Thank you. You'll get your vermouth later. Well, anyway, uh, so uh, the policeman says to her, well, madam, just when did all this happen? So she says, well, uh, it was 23 years ago this September. She says, policeman says, 23 years ago? You mean, you don't expect me to arrest someone for something he did 23 years ago, do you? So the uh, woman says, well, I don't want you to arrest anybody. I just like to talk about it, that's all. The woman behind him laughing at the wrong time and him being completely flustered, trying to tell this joke, and it just going over absolutely like a lead balloon. You know, it's just like, okay, yeah, this was terrible. And the rest of it... It's kind of anti-humor. It is very anti-humor. And yeah, you're right. The rest of it just feels like it's... I mean, I know it was written, but so much of it feels like it was kind of seat of your pants. I mean, I am pretty sure that some of the stuff, especially Taylor Mead, just was not written. That was just like Taylor go kind of thing. Like the his sermon at the very end of the film, just like, wow. You know, I'm sure that that was just completely seat of his pants. And that's what you do with a guy like that is just kind of let him go and see what happens. And so much of this film feels like that kind of anarchic spirit. And I think also another uh, layer, and I know this won't be on the final film, hopefully, if any but he gets to watch it since it's going to be re-released is the screener copy that you sent me has burned across the image in the middle of the screen, not for commercial use, which to me like adds an extra level. <laughs> you know, it's almost like one more bit that comments on the whole thing. So, uh, it, and in a lot of ways, I sort of feel like that. I, I don't think the film is very commercial, but I do think that it's kind of a museum piece and making a statement. And then to add not for commercial use on top of the image just sort of throws an extra comment on top of the whole thing. Especially when there are mock commercials during the middle of the film, you know, like every once in a while they'll do a commercial break and it's like, all right, you know, it feels very like you're watching television really late at night. And this is kind of like the weirdness that might've been going on at the time. I mean, obviously not this weird, but just, it has that kind of like channel flipping thing going on. And there are times where you're kind of cross cutting between a few different things that are going on at the same time. And it's just like, it feels like you're flipping channels back and forth back when you actually used to have turn the knob kind of thing but it's uh it has that kind of flavor of the time capsuleness of uh what might have been going on over the airwaves at the time i mean i guess there's a narrative at times it really doesn't feel like a narrative it feels more like an assembly there are scenes and shows that play out and then as you said there's sort of these intercuts of ads and i guess maybe psas or something like that there's some that are obvious products there's some that don't seem to be products and the only sort of through line really is taylor mead who shows up in i guess various forms from sort of an exercise host to at the end almost like a politician or something or a businessman 
Yeah, he's there as a, a politician at one point, a host of a show. He's there as a preacher. He's there as a nurse. I mean, really, this movie really revolves around him. But there are a few other characters that will show up here and there. I mean, like the there's the overweight woman who's there with all the bodybuilders. And she's there in the Civil War kind of skit that is going on. And Frey Cavistani, who we'll hear from later on, he's there quite often. I, I, I think the movie movie almost begins with him i mean there's just so many of these like uh yeah they just kind of recur 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 and i guess it kind of you know again is like if you're watching television and just seeing the same few actors show up in all these different shows but obviously this is uh a, a small select group of people and then just yeah every once in a while it's like oh and then here's abby hoffman or we'll be going along and it's like oh there's sam shepherd and it's just like, uh, all right, this is kind of interesting. Uh, Sally Kirkland kind of reappearing in different roles. And I watch it again today, and I have to say that the second time through was a little less jarring than the first time through. The first time through I watched it, I was just like, man, this is really shrill. It just felt like everybody was yelling more than speaking. Um, I don't know if you kind of got the same impression or not. Uh, not necessarily that. I mean, I just think like tonally it shifts in really weird ways and it's, uh, that was sort of the, the, the thing to get used to for me more than anything else, because I, I think there's an expectation whenever you walk into a film that you're trying to look for a narrative, you're trying to look for a character, you're trying to look for some sort of thematic through line to take you through the experience, 90 minutes, two hours, however long it's going to be. What I had to eventually do with the um, 15 minutes into the first viewing and definitely on second viewing was just realize that more than anything, it's like the director is strapping you into a roller coaster and he's just taking you through. It's like he's just taking you through. And really the fact that you're just in the building watching this thing is really what it's about. It almost feels at times that you could come in in the middle, you could come in and the, you know, leave, come back, see it again, you know, like sort of the Godard thing. Like he can have a beginning, middle and end, but maybe not even in that order. You know, you could watch it in bits and that would be fine. And to me, it kind of almost feels that way when you talk about um, a lot of the underground film in the 60s almost feels that way you know where you can kind of drop in or drop out see part of it and leave come back see something else it's it's interesting that way i mean for me there's some definite shows and set pieces uh, ads uh and whatnot that are in here that are interesting and in how they're amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals from courses to help you attain or retain certification to individualized coaching services to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen management concepts optimizes your professional development online in person individually or groups it's training that's measurably better learn more at managementconcepts.com that's managementconcepts.com before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Handled. And and that to me is where I found sort of like um, 
like the peaks and valleys kind of thing where there were certain ads that I really liked and there were certain performances that I really liked or ideas that I really liked. For example, like there's this dirt ad that keeps showing up and this body odor ad that keeps showing up. And it's basically like anti-advertising where, you know, instead of selling you soap and deodorant, they're selling you the opposite. And then the, the other one I thought that was funny because we often talk about overconsumption the the problems of overconsumption at times and there's this one where there's this couple and she's i think she's topless and like covered in food and the guys there and they're just like eating all of this stuff and it almost seems like this bizarre adam and eve kind of in the garden of eden and the tagline for it is eat more think less which i mean i think could be a um you know, basically the motto or ad copy for like a buffet restaurant, you know, today, and no one would blink an eye. They would just go along with it. The boys talk things kind of funny. Like he talked about that a little bit with the the lady with the bodybuilders. There's a lot in here where, and, and I don't even think it's necessary to have quote unquote actors, you know, in the film, but these are obvious, you know, weightlifters. And at times you kind of get the feeling they're like, okay, well, where's this? Like, what does she want me to do? Like, what am I supposed to do here? Oh, you want me to flex this or flex that? Okay. You know, so it's kind of interesting to see these interactions between people playing characters and people playing themselves. Yeah. And, um, by the way, I, I forgot to say that the, um, overweight lady I was talking about was Tally Brown and, uh, she's one of, you mentioned a couple of, uh, Warhol superstars and she's yet another person that was kind of in the Warhol camp. It's like going out and Googling these folks. If you're not familiar with them, it's like almost all of them worked with Warhol at one time. And we'll hear kind of the, um, a little bit of the rivalry between Chamberlain and Warhol when we talk to Sam Chamberlain's win son in a little bit here, but it's this is such a time capsule of all of these actors and people that just like where did they come from why are they doing this and it's just fascinating more than anything for me just in that respect i mean when i heard about this movie years and years ago this was one of those like uh Gosh, I don't even remember where I heard about it first, but it like kind of went to the top of my I'm looking for this list just because of the absolutely bizarre list of characters, you know, list of actors. I mean, to have Sam Shepard and Abby Hoffman in the same movie together, to have Candy Darling and Taylor Mead, obviously there's the Warhol connection and everything, but just the more it went on, the more it was just like, wow, this is a really interesting sounding film and why can't i see this thing and that of course is the question i ask far too often when i'm looking at older films just like why can't i see this i really want to see this so i'm so glad that now it is kind of limited availability but soon hopefully will be in wider release so that more people can kind of take this thing apart a little bit and look at all the different folks that were involved with this project yeah and other pieces that are in here that I like. There's an ad for the Old Colonial Dope Company. And the Old Colonial Dope Company reminded me of, I don't know if anyone remembers these or if they just played in Michigan area, was there used to be these ads for like life insurance. And it was like Colonial Pen or something. It was some company that was selling you life insurance. And I almost got the feeling that someone saw one of these life insurance ads and was doing an ad based on drug policy but trying to show that drugs actually 
uh, as we all know, our, our big business for banks and the government and everyone else who can get their fingers in it. So, uh, because dope is a way of life, as the, uh, <laughs> the motto was. The Abby Hoffman scene is interesting because he's not playing Abby Hoffman. And he's playing a cop or something who has retired or is going to retire or something. And it all takes place in a bathroom. And when we first meet him, he's, I guess he's like taking a shit or something. And he's talking, he's like doing this monologue to the camera. And then he gets in the bathtub filled with money and through the whole thing, it it almost seems like he's talking about a retirement fund or something from what I remember and how, you know, during his career, you save up this money and, you know, it's my retirement fund and all this stuff. And then and then proceeds to start lighting the money on fire in the bathtub, which I know Abby Hoffman had, had some um, bipolar. <laughs> but I'm like thinking to myself, he's going to burn himself really bad <laughs> because Abby Hoffman is not a um, – He's kind of hair stewed. He's got a lot of hair, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, it's only a matter of time before, oh, I don't know, his legs catch on fire <laughs> or his hair <laughs> on his head. I mean, it's, uh, you know, rolling around naked in a big pile of money inside of a bathtub with, with you know, money on fire. This doesn't seem uh, like a good idea for a guy like him. No, not not recommended to do at home. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Taylor Mead at one point plays the president. And there's like the State of the Union address, which is more like a um, more like a press conference with people in the audience asking questions and whatnot. And and it sort of the, the way it's staged, it sort of shows the ineptitude of of the president. And it's actually the people behind the president that are more important than the guy up front. And I think he's being fed lines, or his press guy, or somebody is answering questions for him. But there's one line in there that I really like is. Um, I don't think the inevitable will ever happen. <laughs> that that line made me laugh. I like that's good. I like that one. Taylor Mead's such an interesting guy. It was kind of hard to look at him sometimes, just because he's kind of got that droopy eye going on, and I was just like, oh man, <laughs> he is kind of weird looking. I mean, the only thing that I can kind of say is that he reminds me of this comic who was around, I think, in the eighties and nineties, Emo Phillips, for some reason. Like oh, he reminds me of like a a more grandfatherly, older version. You know, he doesn't quite have the same vocal affect, but he just has this sort of like droopy presence, as you were talking about, and. Um, the the one where I got to see him quite a bit, I mean, he's in here, and this is a full feature, but uh, when I got the uh, Up All Night Robert Downey box set from Criterion, he is in uh, Babo 73, which is uh, Downey's first short that's on there from like 1962 or 63. And I think this must have been either when he was just starting out or around the time when he was just working with Warhol and the thing that's interesting about Taylor Mead is that he was like older than everyone else in the whole Warhol scene. I mean, the guy was, I think he was born in the twenties. So, I mean, by this time he was, you know, he was in his like late thirties or early forties, uh, when he first started working with Warhol, which is old when you consider that, you know, Candy Darling and Joe D'Alessandro and, and all of them were probably all in their twenties. So he was almost like the dad, you know, he's probably about the same age as Warhol was, if not maybe even older. And uh, also a local boy. Grew up in uh, Gross Point. Yeah. I got to see a lot of Taylor Mead in the Warhol film called Taylor Mead's Ass. 
<laughs> you get to look at his ass. Which was very much uh, reminiscent of the film in Idiocracy, where it's just the guy's <laughs> butt on screen. I think that might have been just called Ass. It was called Ass, yeah, and it won all the awards at the Oscars that year. That's right. As President Joe says at the end, movies that'll be made won't just be the ass, but you'll know whose ass is farting and why. Back when movies had stories. Of course, I was reminded a lot, you know, you brought up Putney Swope, and I'm glad that you did because that was one where I was like, okay, I think Rob might like this movie because it is kind of reminiscent of Putney Swope. It also reminded me a lot of things like Kentucky Fried Movie and The Groove Tube and these kind of, um, you know, just craziness. I was thinking uh, Amazon Women on the Moon. Oh, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, but there's actually more structured Amazon Women on the Moon because there's no sort of like disclaimer at the front saying, you're watching Channel Whatever, and then there's all these weird cut-ins, which like the whole premise of Amazon Women on the Moon is they're trying to show you this bad sci-fi film, but it keeps breaking, so they have to keep filling the time with odd commercials and half of shows and then cut back to the film and you know things like that and promos for other things so it's this this i don't think has a premise like that i can't figure out if it's one station and this is like an hour and a half in one station having a nervous breakdown or if there's something else going on yeah i guess i was kind of reminded of americathon a little bit too where it's just like you know they're writing a telethon to save america so it's just like all these bizarre acts that they have on TV, uh, including Meatloaf, by the way, in uh, one of his early roles. But uh, it just had that kind of flavor to me, too. But again, with that, you see the reason why all these crazy acts are on television and this, you know, the behind-the-scenes kind of stuff as they're getting ready for the next act to come on. Whereas with this, uh, I guess it kind of felt a little bit more like gong show movie a little bit to me, just that kind of level of of anarchy. And I'm sorry, I keep coming back to anarchy because that's just really what it felt like to me. Even when it came to, again, that cutting style where it's just like, you don't know where the next scene's going to go. And every once in a while we come back, like I think the nurse bit might be there a couple times. Am I right about that? Or am I just completely off? Well, I know that the dirt ads and the body odor ads are in there two or three times. So those are in there, but they're in like different versions. So so I know those repeat. I, I can't quite remember on the nurse thing. I'm, I apologize for that. No worries. But, but just just it, it is more it is more stream of conscious. It is more sort of like loosely tied together. Like like I said, I I think the main theme is you're just in the room, and this is a station like having a nervous breakdown or something I can't or, or the world is having a nervous breakdown I I mean the, the thing that's fascinating to me when you think about it this was made in like probably 69 early 1970 and you know it wasn't a media saturated environment like today is and the fact that someone could create something like this or you know Putney Swope when it was created I think it's really kind of ahead of its time in some ways because, you know, back then it was just the three major networks. You didn't have 500 cable channels and satellite and, you know, YouTube and so much different things being thrown at you all the time. So this guy is pulling stuff out and really taking the hammers to television, which at this point had only been around, you know, in in mainstream ways about, what, uh, 20 years you know, because if you figure what, 48, 49, post war, TV starts to really take off. 
and really didn't kind of get its footing until the early 50s. So, I mean, he's he, he's really satirizing something that's a relatively new form. You know, it would be like if someone sat down and did a satire of the internet right now uh, in, in a heavy way and then, you know, 40 years later we'd look at that and go, man, how primitive, you know. Look at how it's changed, you know. So, but it but it does show you a certain time and place. Like in-appropriate comedy or movie 43? Is that what that was supposed to be? I think I lasted about uh, five minutes into movie 43. Uh, movie 43 just had like... I think a skit or two about the internet, but yeah, it felt like it was done by people with a very short attention span and really impaired senses of humor. Unless you like Hugh Jackman wearing balls on his chin. Yeah, I think that was where I turned it off. I'm just like, you know what? That is, I, I don't understand why this is funny. Um, like, it, it, it's one of those films where, to quote the great Sam Kennison when he was talking about how there was so much stuff on TV but nothing worth watching, he said, you know, it was like you had to be high in order to watch TV. Like, and I, that's how I kind of felt about movie 43. I think even if I was completely stoned out of my mind, I would still find it insulting and I wouldn't be able to make my way through it. I'm just really glad they put that one so close to the front of the movie because it really is kind of the klaxon to say, abandon ship. You are not, if you can't get into this skit, you're not going to enjoy the rest of the movie. So, yeah, I was kind of right there with you. That was where I quit the first time, but then being the glutton for punishment that I am, I had to go in and finish it up. Was that uh, film created by that uh, lovely law firm that you like, uh, Freeberg and Seltzer? Surprise. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Basically, no. That would have even been low for those guys. Though I still have to say the low water mark for me is still the hungover games. Oh boy, we've, we've tangented quite a bit here. I, I think we're looking at a satire... But like I said, there are some satires that are not fall on the fall, uh, fall on the floor funny, um, jokes that are not set up to be jokes in that way. Like sometimes it's anti-comedy, sometimes it's just someone trying to make an interesting image or juxtaposition of images. And to be honest, with you know Win Chamberlain's background. That might be more of a possibility when you look at something like Brand X because. As far as I know, this was his first, maybe even only film. And before that, he was a painter and was in contemporary art circles. So he may have been taking the idea of images and that sort of sensibility of pop art and repurposing and things like that um, just to make something that he found interesting and not necessarily uh, a, a comedy in the classical sense.
and it is pretty tough to watch this film 45 years after it was made and be able to really put your head in that same context as it was. You know, looking back at this, it's like it was so of the moment. And I'm sure that they thought some of this stuff would still last, and some of it does. You know, some of these things are as effective today as they were all these years ago. But then there are other times, such as the political stuff, where I'm just like, I'm sure that would have been a lot more funny at the time. It's like, I'm very curious. I haven't gone back and watched The Simpsons in a long time, as far as the first couple seasons. I'm very curious if I went back now and watched that 25 years on if I would get all of the jokes you know are those things still as relevant today as they were back then or would they just kind of fly by me and would I be scratching my head or would I not even notice well to give you a similar and it's something that that actually I created almost 20 years ago 18 years ago was when we did the um, drunken commentary for my little vampire film tainted last April not this past one but the one before and i remember watching that film about 10 years after we did it and i'm just like man these jokes are old (laughs) i'm just like these are so old like i didn't write it but it was one of those things where i go this is not going to hold up well i'm like it's not holding up well right now so that's one of the things it's it's hard when you want to do something that is of its era when you want to say something about the time that you live in that you know, sometimes you need a guide. Sometimes you need, um, you, you know, what might actually kind of work for this film a little bit would be, um, and, and this is going to be an odd comparison. A few years ago, uh, Don May and the folks over at Synapse put out a restored version of The Triumph of the Will. And if you bought it, then the proceeds went to the Holocaust Museum. But I remember on there, they had a commentary track with a professor, and they also had a um, a subtitle track that told you who people were and what particular things you were looking at. And this, I think, helped in in watching it because – you know, yeah, it's a Nazi rally, and there's Hitler giving a speech, and you can read the subtitles and all that stuff. But to understand the context of what you're looking at. Like, why is this rally 1935? Who is that person in the audience? What are they talking about beyond what you can infer from what they're talking about? But there's actually things that they're referencing that you're not going to get because you're not a German in 1935. So to have that subtitle track, to have that commentary that you can turn on and watch it, I thought was invaluable because it added so much more to the film and made it much more than just a curiosity piece to look at it from the example of, well, this is a great, in quotes, piece of cinema in terms of how it was structured from a director-editor standpoint. We talk about Riefenstahl, and then also a historical document because obviously who's in it. It was it was interesting to have that, and I think it may be good to have that option with something like this, where you could have someone who can kind of go, okay, based on the script, based on the things that they were putting together, this is what they're trying to reference in case you don't know that, or this is who this person is, or this is a satire of this idea, or this thing that happened at the time. And I think that could be um, a great addition to uh, expanding your, your knowledge and understanding of what he was trying to get at in the film. Well, you know, it's like I always say, every movie would be better if it was done by pop-up video. Pop-up, 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 pop-up
pop-up video, I got to tell you, either that or uh, Mystery Science Theater. I, I don't think we need the MST3K thing in here because I think that actually you can get quite a bit of of good things out of this. I mean, you can understand some of the ideas and, and the attitudes and what they're trying to satire and things like that. Let's go ahead and take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with Sam Chamberlain, and the second is with actor Frank Cavastani after these brief messages. We are the Popcorn Poops. My name is Dustin. And my name is Jessica. And together we produce Popcorn Poops, the best married couple movie commentary track podcast on the internet. Join us each week as we take turns picking films and then watch and discuss them together. If you're at home or with a computer or device, you can sync up the movie and watch it right along with us. However, you don't have to sync up the film to enjoy the show. Feel free to tune in like you would to any other podcast. Please visit us on the internet at www.popcornpoops.com. Again, that's www.popcornpoops.com. Here at Single Simulcast, we often think about our listeners. What you're feeling, what your emotions are. How much there was a show that I could depend on? Every Wednesday, Single Simulcast will bring you some of the liveliest, funniest podcasts that you've ever heard. With such things as skits, musical interludes, and parody songs. I wish there was a show that I could laugh at. We here at Single Simulcast fully support you and your visions and dreams. So we will never do anything but bring you the most hilarious storylines in the game today. I wish I could fly. Single Simulcast loves you. We want you to know that we will always be funny. Except for now. Because we're being serious. Serious about being funny. I wish I had a wish star like Macaulay Culkin. That's Single Simulcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Zoom, and at www.singlesimulcast.com. Single Simulcast. If you don't know by now, then you're probably slipping. This is Single Simulcast. Is your house too clean? Did you know that if your house is too clean, it may cause dangerous virus to grow? Use dirt. Dirt is the only thing that can cause bacteria to grow. Dirt really works. When bacteria grow, viruses disappear. Bacteria eat viruses. Use dirt. My name is Sam Chamberlain. I am an artist, and I also do other things with technology, mainly to do with websites. And I'm the son of uh, Elwin Chamberlain, who is the maker of Brand X, and also uh, a fairly well-known artist in the 50s and 60s in New York, and then later in his life, also a writer of note. Now, you grew up in India and California and in the 1970s. What was that like? What happened is, is uh, me and my sister, I have a twin sister, and we were born in New York City 
1968. But my first memory, actually, in my life is of India. I have no, I have no previous memories of New York. So, in a way, some, I sometimes consider myself Indian. And how we came to be in New York is our parents were getting a bit fed up with New York t- towards the end of the 60s. There was a lot of problems in New York, and a lot of people were getting uh, arrested, and there was a lot of violence. And you kind of felt that the, the dream had soured. I'm sure you've probably heard that before. And I think it was either Allen Ginsberg or someone called Robert Fraser, who you may have heard of. There was a book written on him recently called Groovy Bob. He was a big kind of art person in the 60s, uh, more in London. And they said to my mother and father, hey, you should go to India. It's groovy. Why don't you come check it out? And so off they went, kind of on a holiday to India, a kind of uh, what was planned to be an extended holiday. And then they basically stayed for five years. There was a whole range of experiences. When we first were there, we were kind of hanging out with a lot of other Westerners who were living in India and, and checking out the various things that they were doing. And we, we visited some ashrams. Um, at one point for a while, we lived in uh, what used to be a viceroy's palace in Bangalore, which had about 35 rooms and some uh, inherited servants. Uh, you know, it was kind of like a palace. and It was, I think, $100 a, a year was the rent. Then later on, my father got quite interested in Hindu spirituality and lived with, and we ended up living with some gurus to the point where at one point we were living in a mud hut, basically with a kind of, shall we say, sorcerer out in the middle of the jungle in a place nobody's ever heard of. We also lived in a small village in South India for several years uh, where we were the only foreigners there for many years. Yeah, that was all all very very interesting, as you can imagine. So why the decision to go back to California? Well, what happened in 1975 is there was uh, an, something called the emergency, and Mrs. Gandhi, who was the president of India at the time, there was some some sort of uh, people contesting her power. I'm not, I don't know the exact uh, details, but basically uh, she invoked what's called the foreign hand. The foreign hand is undermining you know our wonderful state, and and she revoked all the all the visas of all the foreigners, and we had to leave. And then we went back to America, and we spent a little bit of time in New York and then saw some relatives. But my parents at that point were, my, particularly my father, was very, very disillusioned with Western civilization. And he thought it was all pretty evil and very commercial. And, you know, we'd been kind of on this Hindu spiritual trip. So uh, we decided to live, uh, go to California. And, um, and, and, and we, we got this property with a, uh, with a group of other people and formed a land partnership. And it was a kind of back-to-the-land, almost like a hippie commune, but a little bit more business-like than a hippie commune. But it was kind of like a bunch of freaks living out in the forest with no electricity. And at one point, I think we were there for about six months at least. We lived in a tent, I remember. And then we kind of built our own house. Uh, Well, actually, yeah, we did build our own house. And we actually still go back to that place, and it's absolutely wonderful. It is way, way out there in, in Northern California, out in the woods. Mendocino County. It's a little bit more technically advanced uh, there. I think they have Wi-Fi on the land now, and they have a lot of solar panels and stuff like that. Yeah, it was it, it was a very interesting way to to grow up. That whole kind of back to the land commune thing. I've done there and been you know been there and done that. <laughs> it must make it a little tough to have to relate to people that live the quote unquote normal childhood, you know, living in the suburbs, that kind of stuff. 
It does a, a bit occasionally. I mean, then at a certain point, I think when we were about 13 or 14, my father's fa- father died. We inherited a little bit of money, and we decided, made a family decision uh, that, that we wanted to go to school. I think it was kind of my sister, partly. It was like, well, why aren't we going to school? And, and you've been teaching us, but we want to learn more. And and so we, we investigated a bunch of kind of private schools in America, but then uh, there was this quite good private school in India. So then we went back to India in, in 1983, and... Me and my sister went to this um, to this this boarding school called Woodstock School. Um, and nothing to do with the festival. We graduated high school from there, and so we met a whole variety of children there from all over the world, really. Um, everything from diplomats' children to missionary children. Um, and then my sister and I both went to university in the states, and I also went to. to Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com to college uh, for a year uh, um, in, 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 in uh, the United Kingdom, in, in England, at Oxford. And that's, that's one of the reasons I kind of come to be here. That's another whole long story, really. But uh, that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm now living in England. Now, I had read that around the end of the 60s, when you're talking about that time when your folks were disillusioned, that your dad ended up burning all of his artwork. Is that true? Um, he burned some things he wasn't happy with. He burned a, a, a lot of papers, memorabilia. He gave things away. Uh, it was a kind of a, a crazy time. Uh, you know, there was there was certainly, I think, some probably some psychedelic usage going on, and a kind of you know, this is all material crap, and you know, who cares about that? Uh, I'm not sure exactly what was going on. Yeah, but I think that some stuff was destroyed, and certainly he destroyed some art. Though many of his more important paintings from the 50s and the 60s, most of those were sold. And I'm kind of involved with a project now um, to try and collect together my father's archives, memorabilia. That's probably going to be going on for a couple of years. It's probably going to take me a couple of years to try and see what I can find. You know, paintings, records of paintings, but also, also, also writings and correspondence and, and all the various strange things they collected. I have to keep you posted on that one. Now, when it comes to Brand X, that is definitely one of his major pieces of art. How did that kind of resurface after all these years? When they went to India, Brand X had been had not been making been hugely successful. But there was these two guys with this little company called uh, Bob Shea and Ben Barinholtz, who you may have heard of. They took Brandex around the college circuit on a double bill with Reefer Madness, and they've been making some money off of that. So they had a copy. So New Line Cinema had this copy, but they didn't really have rights to it. And at some point, New Line Cinema used Brandex and about, I think, 150 other films as collateral to get a loan from some bank. And I think at a certain point, they were impounded. Anyway, it all kind of turned into a mystery. My, my, my parents, you know, were off in India, you know, and no one could contact them. Then when they returned in 1975 to the United States, my parents, my father tried to contact both Ben Barrels and Bob Shea and only could get through to the receptionists who, who, who said, actually, they're suing each other and, and, and they can't talk about any of this. They've since then made up or whatever or come to some settlement. But at that and, and so after a couple of years, my father just gave up, basically. So that's kind of the pre-story, and I heard about this movie throughout my whole childhood, this amazing movie with this crazy guy, Taylor Mead, and 
you know. And then actually, I, I, after university, I lived in New York for six six months, and 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 I met Taylor Mead uh, at, at a couple of parties. And at one point, he came up to my me and was like, "Your father owes me money." And started ranting, ranting at me, you know. And then we just kind of lost interest. And then in 2007, there's a guy called Jeff Greenfield and his partner. I don't have the name to hand, uh, but they do something called Buzz Nation, and it's a kind of advertising thing. And they've made a lot of money doing advertising on the internet. And they were hanging out in upstate New York with this old hippie called Joe Stevens, who was a photographer. And he was like, I was the photographer on this amazing movie, this crazy project, and you guys would be really interested in this. So basically the Buzz Boys, as we call them, they said, wow, this thing, there were some stills from it. And they're like, wow, this would be a great thing we could, you know, chop up and maybe sell for advertising. We could do something with this. So they contacted us. and And we said, well, we don't know where it is. But if you uh, want to make a search, and, 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 so, and so they did search for a while, and they got through to, uh, they contacted Ben, uh, ben Barinholtz, and then they tried to get through New Line Cinema, but they didn't really get that far. And I think they got some idea that, that New Line Cinema might have a copy. And then after about, I think it was about six or eight months, they basically gave up and, and said, hey, well, you know, we tried, uh, you know, you need to hire a lawyer maybe or something. But luckily we have this, good friend of ours who's called Daniel Mahar, who I always must, must thank. Uh, he's a, a, a corporate lawyer, actually, but just a dear old family friend. And he basically approached New Line Cinema and just charmed all the receptionists for months and, and chatted to them about how their life was going. And I think he even sent them flowers and chocolates. And finally, one of them got through to, to Bob Shea. And Bob Shea was like, oh, that's Wynne Chamberlain's film. Oh, you, sh- you should send it to him. And then we got this box with these with these reels in it. I think we, first we got one box, then a bit later we got a second box. Uh, you know, you know, with these reels, and and yeah, and, and that's how we that's we got, how we got our hands on it. So, what was it like seeing the film after you had heard about it for so many years? Well, it was it was as good as 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 we expected. I mean, basically, we we, we did a CD scan of it, and then we 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 started to look at it, and and my sister and I looked at it, and. And some of our friends and my parents, and we were like, wow, this is incredible. And, and we've kind of been, you know, pushing it ever since then. Well, so then what happened next is, is, well, well at one point we were, we were going to do a documentary involving the film and the, and the characters around, uh, around the making of the film and various weird stories associated with the film. But that project, it didn't, it, in the end, it didn't, it folded basically. It didn't, it didn't, we, we didn't get past the contract stage. So then we were like, well, maybe we should try a, 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 a exhibiting it, see if anybody's interested. Uh, we approached the new museum, and, and, and we said, and my father was quite paranoid about sending it to anybody. So I, we, we basically had to try and promote this thing without sending it to anybody. <laughs> and the new museum, the curator there, um, I'm sorry, I don't have his name to hand, he said, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll organize a screening at the, the new museum, sight unseen. And so we had this great screening. Uh, packed screening. Uh, we got some great press in the New York Times. And then since then, I've, I've, I've been doing various exhibitions, uh, at, at, uh, there's a screening at the, at the Harvard Film Archive, at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, at, at various film festivals in Europe. And then, then our big one was kind of, we, we did a double screening at the Berlin International Film Festival back in 2012. And then we had a, we had a screening at, at, at the Tate Modern in Britain. That definitely generated some interest, I and mean, we, we we got some more press. There was a big article in the Independent about it. There was an, an article about my parents and film in, in Italian Vogue, 
and 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 then basically we we found this these people who who were now interested in restoring it, which is which is kind of where we're at now, the uh, the Cineteca de Bologna, and 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 we've and we've basically finished a an initial restoration, which I guess you've seen. When these screenings were happened, did some of the people that were in the film kind of come back for it and participate in the screenings? There were some interesting people at at at, at the screening. One person who who came to the screen who wasn't really involved with the making of the film basically the publisher of of, of grove press you know who broke the obscenity laws in, in america in the 60s and and i remember my father stood up and he said here is the man who's given us freedom is here in the audience and there were all sorts of other interesting characters from the 60s and people who were involved with the film most of the actors weren't available except for taylor Maid. And Taylor Maid came in, and he was grumbling. And I don't know if you, how much you know about Taylor Maid, but uh, he, was, he was still a great poet and performing all the time, you know, up till you know the last days of his life. But he was he was very curmudgeonly, so he came in grumbling, and he was like, "Oh, that Wynton Chamberlain, that stupid film, and where's my money?" And he's been ripping me off for. Sat down, he watched the movie, and he came out afterwards, and he was like, "That's the best thing I've ever done, by far." He, and then we went and had this great kind of after party at this bar. And my father and him sat down and it was like, you know, they were old lovers who hadn't seen each other in, in 40 years. And they just had a wonderful time and one telling all these stories and Taylor saying, you know, this is an incredible movie. And my father going, you know, Taylor, you're a genius. And, and since then, then Taylor is, was, was involved. They did a Taylor Mead weekend at the Harvard Film Archive. And that's when they showed up. Uh, and I, I got to hang out with him a bit there. And then this this screening of the Tate Modern, and his niece and I um, got him over for the for that screen, and that was the last time I saw him uh, before he passed away. It seems like he must have been quite a character. He certainly was. Well, I mean, you've seen him in the movie and maybe some other things by Andy Warhol, but also really, I think quite a, quite a talented poet. My father uh, really considers him as one of the great poets of the 20th century. Though, in Taylor Mead's words, he said once, uh, "I think I did about." 10% of what I could have done. <laughs> um, he had a lot of fun, though. Yeah, he seems to be in, I mean, almost every scene, if not every scene. The film is partly a vehicle for him. Just to, just to mention some of the other people, that after the screening, my parents were staying with some friends, and they did some private screenings, and a couple of other people. There's a Frank Cavastani, who was one of the main people in the movie. Uh, he showed up, and also Ultraviolet, who's now also, unfortunately, passed away. And then they had some great kind of evenings with them, and, and, and they were all very supportive of the, of the whole thing. So your dad's known as being an artist. He's later known for his writing. How did the film come about? Was that his medium at all, or what happened there? Not really. I'll give a little bit of prehistory. My father was a painter. There's lots of detail um, about my father's history as a painter. But basically, towards the mid-60s, he kind of got bored of, of, of sitting in his studio and also interacting with rich collectors. And he was like, you know, a lot of these people I don't like. And there's this whole kind of scene. There's this stuff happening here, you know, as they were all saying in the 60s. It was, and he kind of started to get into, into experimental theater. And I don't know if you know of a group called The, the Living Theater. It's run by um, uh, Judith Molina and Julian Beck. They were part of the downtown scene, and they've been doing all these kind of really outrageous theater performances and almost getting arrested and lots of... So then my father got involved with this project and, and, and produced something, a, a play called Conquest of the Universe, which was, I think, by tr written by Charles Ludlum was, was the writer. And basically it involved a lot of the people from the Andy Warhol scene, a lot of the same people who were in, in Brand X. I just wish 
someone had been there to film that because it really sounds like you know there was an ab- you know absolutely incredible performance. Conquest of the Universe obviously had some incredibly seminal scenes. Uh, I think it probably had about you know five or ten incredible scenes of, of Taylor Mead. Everyone loved it. it. It sold out. Lines around the block. Nobody filmed it, unfortunately. So all we have is hearsay and stories. After that, the story goes that m- that my parents were snowed in upstate with some friends, and all they could do really was watch kind of crappy American TV at the time, and they were like, boy, this is dumb. Uh, wouldn't it be fun to make a satire of this? And at the same time, my father was like, in, uh, was, was thinking about Taylor Mead and how, you know, what a great uh, artist and poet and performer he was, you know, and he was like, I, I want to do something with Taylor Mead. So let's do something about Taylor Mead, you know, and about television. So I think they just kind of started doing scene by scene. You know, they didn't like do the whole movie and then sell it. They kind of shot a scene and then tried to get some money and then like shot another scene and kind of did it like that. And I think there's one funny anecdote. I think that they, they went to, I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Lieber and Stoller, who are some of the great songwriters of the, I think of the 20th century. century. And I think my father approached them for some money and they were like, oh, there's nobody we'd rather lose money on than Taylor Mead. <laughs> so, you know, they were getting money from friends. There's also um, another person who put in quite a bit of money and is actually a- appears very briefly in one of the scenes in, in Brand X. Just Google Ron Stark. He was this kind of friendly doctor who was kind of uh, handing out psychedelics to people. But he then, we found out years later that he was some kind of weird triple agent who was kind of behind the brotherhood of eternal love you know about all this sort of stuff they were kind of behind a lot of the the whole psychedelic stuff of the 60s but they were also connected to like various secret services such as, as the cia anyway so so there's all kinds of crazy characters uh, I, I think i think the crew was probably more out there than the actors the actors a lot of them were a number of them were quite professional actors um you know and were more into you know drinking and and, and taking barbiturates and stuff. But some of the crew were dropping acid every day, I think. <laughs> but my father later in his life was like, it's a very serious art movie. And I, I, I think it is quite serious in, in a lot of ways. But there is this kind of side story that there was it, was, it was a time when, you know, you could do something serious and very unserious at the same time. There's one other funny anecdote worth mentioning is um, you'll notice that some of the sex scenes are quite extended. And, and basically, um, the main cameraman and main editor who shot the whole film, except for the sex scenes, and he's the guy in the sex scenes. And I guess he kind of fancied, or he, you know, he kind of thought he was pretty sexy at the time, so he kind of extended those scenes. <laughs> so if those drag on a little bit, that's that's probably why. And then I think they spent a long time editing it. Uh, Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And there's actually some missing scenes uh, that were edited out, which I would love to you know, know if they, they ever exist. You know, if, if they exist. Apparently, there's a scene of Taylor Mead and uh, Tally Brown doing uh, a moon landing. And they're in these moon suits. And uh, you can just imagine... <laughs> I'm amazed that the cast, some of the people that show up in it, are just terrific. Yeah, um, well, and Warhol at the time was making all these movies, but my father was also friends with a lot of these people. And uh, well, my father at least used to say that Andy Warhol sent some of them over as spies. He, he, he said they sent Candy Darling over as a spy to spy on them. Because it was my father's uh, uh, feeling that Andy was not happy about this film being made. He was quite jealous about it. There were other people who just wandered in. For example, there's that guy, the surfer, uh, in the suit. Uh, and he was just some rich guy who just wandered in and was like, I'm going to give you five grand for your movie. Um, put me in a scene. Um, and they were like, okay. <laughs> some, some of it was quite, the casting was quite shambolic. That strange Jewish comedian who tells the, the joke about the woman being raped, he just wandered in off the street and was like, hi, I'm a comedian. I want to be in your movie. I think the bodybuilders, my father just happened upon them at some gym and said, hey, do you want to be in a movie? It was, it was kind of, it was, it was a lot less formal in those days, or, or it could be a lot less formal. It was a small scene. It was a small scene. It's like all the painters, the poets, you know, half of them were sleeping with each other. Uh, they all kind of knew each other. The main people, um, Tally Brown, Frank Cavastani, Sally Kirkland, you know, they were they were quite professional actors, and they've been in lots of other stuff. And actually, uh, Sally Kirkland's been nominated for some Oscars and stuff. And as you may know, was married to Dennis Hopper for a long time. Though I think he then, they had a very bad breakup. So I think he uh, was violent to her or something like that. Yeah, and then, if, then of course, there's Taylor Mead, who was, I guess, kind of an actor. But he's kind of like, uh, what did somebody say about him recently? They've called Taylor Mead the Shirley Temple of the New York Underground. <laughs> Uh, and he has a, almost a kind of Chaplin-esque quality to him as well sometimes. I mean, he really was a kind of a one-of-a-kind. Um, have you ever seen um, this movie made by John Chamberlain? It's, it's kind of about, it's supposed, supposedly supposed to be about the conquistadors, but it's basically them kind of wandering around being very shambolic in Mexico. There's a great scene of Taylor Mead disco dancing in front of all these Mexicans who are like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> There's a good scene from Lonesome Cowboy by Andy Warhol also with Taylor Mead and Joe D'Alessandro having this great kind of boogie down, which is worth checking out. I think it's on YouTube. When the film was initially released, what was kind of the reaction to it? It got lots of reviews all over the place. It was reviewed everywhere. It was reviewed in the New York Times and Newsweek and Rolling Stone. You know, it, it basically got very good reviews. It got these, you know, these amazing quotes and stuff from from some fairly important people um the thing about brand x is is it's got it's got these touches of underground cinema it's got these touches of a kind of andy warhol shambolic scene some of it is very shambolic other parts are very hippie but the frame of reference is television and so people really get that so it has a certain mainstream appeal and people you know just the, the common person who isn't some uh, art world person will often get it I mean, some people just think it's too weird, and so yeah. So, so it, it was very, it, it was, it was, it was a big hit, and uh, you know, lines around the block, and uh, it sold out shows. And then the plan was to launch all over the country, 
and then they were going to do they were going to launch in Boston, and and uh, there's this term apparently that was uh, around that time called banned in Boston, and they were hoping that basically they would show it in Boston, which was quite a prudish city at the time, and then it would get banned, and then you get tons of press. Right around that time, my father started getting calls from all these people at MGM saying, uh, we love your film, we want to take it big time worldwide, uh, but we want to uh, reshoot some scenes and maybe take out some of the actors. And my father was having discussions with them. He wasn't very happy about this, uh, but, he, uh, but he agreed to kind of delay the momentum of the film. After that, then that, that kind of killed the momentum of the film a bit. As I said, Ben, ben Barenholtz and Bob Shea took it around the country, but... And, and then my father then tried to get a hold of these people like a month later, and suddenly they didn't exist. These people he'd been chatting with to do, do this big deal with MGM. And my father really thinks that this is, uh, was a government plot, was basically someone from the Nixon administration coming in and using uh, his contacts in the film industry to try and kill the film. And there is some possibility that there's probably some truth to that. It, it certainly could be possible. You know, when you have a movie which is really, really badly t uh, taking the piss out of, you know, the president and the president's wife. So you can understand why he, and, and well, aside from all the nudity and sex and homosexuality and everything else that's in there, you know. When the film has kind of resurfaced now and is playing out all these different places, what's been the reaction now? Oh, we've been getting a great reaction you know i mean we've been um uh, where we've had the best reaction is 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 the kind of art world underground queer cinema world uh, those people absolutely love it and in the art world they absolutely love it that's why we've had you know write-ups in italian vogue and art forum um you know all these exhibitions at museums we've had less mainstream interest so far but we haven't really re-released it yet we haven't it really hasn't gone on the market yet does potentially have some mainstream appeal. I mean, I don't think it's going to be like, you know, like some modern Hollywood movie and, and, and hundreds of millions of people are going to see it. But it, it's certainly there's, there's a significant audience for it of, of hundreds of thousands or possibly even millions, as opposed to, for example, an Art Andy Warhol film, which has an audience of about maybe 10,000 people because they're just so out there and so avant-garde. Yeah, it kind of remains to be seen what happens next. Yeah, it seems like it is kind of the predecessor of a lot of things like uh, a Kentucky Fried movie, a group tube, these kind of things, Where, but with a more of a political edge to it, obviously very much product of its time. I think it definitely may have influenced stuff like that because those people who went on to do things like, like for example, Saturday Night Live, a lot of those people were young, you know, hipsters around on the scene and teenagers, and and, and, they, very, and they very well may have been influenced by um, by that, you know, and, and, you know, probably other people like Monty Python, I think is something that, for example, was not influenced by Brandix. It's almost kind of like this, you know, when two things happen that are similar at the same time, I think it was definitely in, in, in influential. And also, um, my father has said that he thinks that hair was the kind of more commercial version of Brandex because, because yes, Brandex is quite radical in some parts, certainly. So you've mentioned a little bit about the plans for the film. Where are you going next with it? Well, basically what we've done is is we've done a restoration of the Cineteca to Bologna. They've licensed various rights. They're hoping to you know, release it and sell it. We'll probably have to do the, you know, the, we'll probably do the festival circuit first and see who's, who's, where the interest is. 
there's one thing I don't want to talk too much about it, but basically there's a possibility that there may be a negative available that has been in storage, and I'm I'm looking into that, and it's a very long and delayed process. But if there was a negative, we could do a much better restoration. We might redo the restoration. And this is uh, one of the causes for the reason we've kind of delayed things a bit, because we basically relaunched the restoration at the... Cinema Retrovato Festival that, that the Cineteca of Bologna does every year, which is their kind of restored movies festival. And that's where we, we kind of did the premiere, and then we've had a couple of screenings since since then, but we haven't really pushed it yet. Because basically, my father, before he died, he was like, well, you know, if you can get this negative, you should really try and get that. So I'm, I'm, that's what I'm working on at the moment. Yeah, tell me about some of the efforts that you're doing to kind of preserve your father's memory, aside from Brand X. Well, that's another project I've started. There are some people who are interested in maybe some doing some things with some museums, with some institutions. Uh, again, I don't want to go into too much detail because it's certainly there's no done deals yet. Uh, but basically what I'm doing now is I'm trying to collect all the stuff. Uh, I don't know if you knew, but my parents lived in, in, in Morocco, in Marrakesh, for many, many years. And I've taken stuff from there. There's stuff in New York. There's stuff in California. I kind of need to pull it all together and look through it all. You know, there's like all kinds of stuff. There's like film reels with no label on them. We don't know what's on them. There's uh, there's sketches by artists from the 60s. There's strange letters. There's, you know, there's like, a, there's like naked pictures of Allen Ginsberg. You know, things just... <laughs> it needs to be collected together and cataloged. And then... Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to, to use these things to, you know, to position, you know, you know, give my father a place in history. You know, that's the, that's kind of my objective. And then, and then maybe do some exhibitions and, 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 and various books. I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's probably going to take a number of years. I'm sure while you were growing up, you heard your folks talking about this movie, and then you finally get to see it and everything. But still, what are some of the surprises that have kind of come out since then as far as, you know, Things that you found out about the making of the movie or the reactions to the film or, or you know, just because uh, I imagine that seeing the movie had to be such a different experience than hearing the film and finally being able to kind of put names to faces, this kind of stuff. I'm interesting, of course, because I've, I've got to go to all the screenings and I'm always screening it to people. So I have seen it many, 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 many times. Uh, I never really get bored of it. There are a couple of scenes I, I get bored of. it. There's some scenes which they're really like almost nothing else I've seen. There's one quality which is, is evident in a couple of scenes where they have these kind of mistakes that happen. And I think this is something that they – the kind of unplanned but planned mistakes. And I think this was something that was, that, that was big in theater and art at the time. And get Like that scene where Ultraviolet falls down, you know, and Taylor, he turns to the camera and he's like, you can't you, – you know, you, 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 know this, you, you, you couldn't pay for this. You can see his expression. He's like, this is just, this is just pure theater. This is amazing. You know, there, there, there's a couple of scenes I could, you know, that first scene, the, the exercise show, uh, or, 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 of course, the last scene, you know, the, the, that, that sermon. I'll tell you a little bit about the ma- making of the sermon. I mean, basically, Taylor Mead was a big fan of, uh, of uh, Quaaludes and was taking a lot of Quaaludes during the making of that film, as is sometimes evident in some of the scenes. My father wrote, basically, all the dialogue, pretty much all the dialogue for the whole movie, except for Taylor Mead's bits, which he basically improvised on the spot often just in one one take. I think they were trying to finish the movie, and Taylor Mead was quite out of it, and they were like trying to shoot him in the scene, and then suddenly he just stood up, and he delivered that sermon in one take. And everyone was just holding their breath, going, oh my God, what is he coming out with? And 
this is the most incredible thing we've ever heard. Just shh, be quiet. Let's hope he can finish it. It's almost very Christian in a way, some parts of it. <laughs> is there a way that folks can kind of help out with the restoration? I mean, do, do you have any kind of like a Kickstarter, Indiegogo, GoFundMe, those kind of things? Well, I did a little project to raise some money to, to pay for uh, some costs around this, this search for this negative. Uh, there, there may be further costs, and I'll, I'll keep you posted, let's put it that way. I, I think we'll probably be looking for all sorts of different sources of funding, trying to ch- chase up various kind of you know, rich people who might be interested in alternative culture, um, writing grants, approaching institutions. It's kind of part of this, uh, I, I kind of need to gather a lot of the things together of my, of my father's, and also see if this negative is available, and then, and, and then I'll proceed with that. Is there a good way to kind of keep up with these screenings or any of the stuff that's going on with the film? Yeah, I, I think probably one of the best ways is is to, is to just like our, our, our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash movie, twitter.com uh, forward slash uh, movie. I kind of run those. And w- when things are happening, I, I, up, uh, I update them a lot you know, when, when things are really going on. So that, and also, of course, our, our website, www.brandexmovie.com which has a lot of information about the movie, and we put major announcements on there. Best smell of all is sweat. Body odor. Body odor. Smell me. How did you get involved with Brand X? Oh, I was in a play written by Murray Mednick at the uh, St. John's or something. I think it was Episcopal Church. They had a theater. Sam Shepard was in it and famous people like that. And I did a play there, and someone came and saw me, you know, Wynn Chamberlain, came backstage and said, I'm doing a movie. I'd like you to be in it. So I was that way. Now, was this your first movie role? No, I had been on television and everything already. I had... When I was, uh, I went to the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, and I, when I got out, I, I toured in a, believe it or not, a passion play. But then I, uh, I, I did a television show with, uh, no, no, I did a, a play with Charlie Winters and ended up starring in it. Because Robert Walker Jr. broke his leg, believe it or not, like a, like an old-fashioned Hollywood story. And I took over for him, uh, playing opposite Shelley. I got an agent. The agent got me. Uh, a television is co-starring a television show called The Defenders, and I did another one, Coronet Blue, so and um, some other television work and films. And I and I then I got drafted, and I, when I came back, is the one I did Brand X. I came back from Vietnam in '69. I think Brand X came out in '70 or something like that. What was kind of the atmosphere like for you working in New York City as a working actor at that time? Oh, it was great. <laughs> I, I used to. Stay up late and watch people go to work in the morning. My friends were, I lived with a guy named Bruce Scott at the, when I was working actor there. He was a singer who used to go to the improv all the time and hang out with Richard Pryor and all those guys. It was a lot of fun, actually. And Bonnie Batilia and Candy Culkin and the other Culkins. I used to hang out with them. Culkin's father, he was hanging around them too. We had a lot of time. We used to hang out in a place called The Scene. Well, um, in fact, I met the Beatles that one night. They came in, everyone except, I think, I think it was Ringo, Paul, George, but I don't think uh, John wasn't with them. I don't know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I, I did four forward plays and stuff like that. 
and uh, worked with the Actors Studio on some stuff. What was it like being in Brand X? Well, Brand X is, was really interesting because uh, we all started living together in Wynn's Loft. It was a time of uh, free love, and uh, you know, we used to every Sunday we used to go to Central Park, a whole group of us, and hang out and smoke pot and take acid and. Uh, you know, it was groovy days and dance, and uh, I had different girlfriends that would stay with us and not stay with us. It was a communal atmosphere. Uh, we're experimenting with everything. Uh, it was it was quite interesting. And we'd get up and we had a, a editing room there, and or at least a uh, editing table. We'd edit the film and go plan the shoot. And John Harnish was the cinematographer, and I wrote some scenes with Win and stuff, and then acted in them. So it was it was quite good, and uh, we were we were rich hippies because well in that, that summer we had the Jacob Astor estate house on the Hudson River, and Sally Chamberlain's house uh, was being rented out to uh, Steve Paul and uh, the Johnny Winter Band. So we used to go over there and swim too. So it wasn't like uh, we weren't poor hippies; we were rich hippies. The cast of Brandex is absolutely amazing, seeing just such a diverse group of actors, but all kind of, you know, just starting out right around the same time. Just, it's amazing. Yeah, well, I, I first ran into Taylor, I became friends with Viva and Ultraviolet, and uh, uh, Nick Douglas, who made a film called Tantra, who was friendly with the Stones. He actually brought me to, to the Stones concert with the Stones. Nick did. That was an amazing life. We went out to see them at the uh, Plaza Hotel, and uh, he just went in and said, Are the Stones here? And the guy said, No, they're doing a show. It's an afternoon show, I think. It was the week of Thanksgiving, I think it was... must have been 70, something like that. Uh, or 69. Uh, yeah, 7, I guess. I don't, I'm, I'm sure. I have the dates at home. Okay, we went and had a, a hamburger or a beer or something. Came back and the Stones were just getting out of the limbo and they said, Nick Douglas, what are you doing here? Come on upstairs. Next thing I know, we were upstairs in their room and hanging out with them. And then when it came time for the show, uh, they said, um, get one of the limos and come, come into the show with us. Which is uh, quite interesting. Was this right around the time that you were starting to work on Operation Last Patrol as well? No, that came later. I, I left Gwen and Sally. Moved in with uh, Laura Weisbord, soon to be Laura Cronenberg and Laura Cavazzetti, and uh, fell in love with her, chased her to Europe, married her, came back, and uh, lived in the Chelsea Hotel. Catherine Leroy showed up, who was one of the primo photographers from the Vietnam War, had the cover of Life magazine, had photographed the NBA behind uh, enemy lines for the first time. And had the cover of life with that too. Besides the other photos she had of a medic at uh, way, she said, "Oh, you must do this film with me." I said, "Why?" Because she's a perfect person, and I know you can do it. I know you can do it. So I put it together, and we just made the film. Now, had you known Ron Kovac before that? No, I, I didn't even know what the focus of the film should be. But I had done a lot of work with Mike Sandberg and TV TV. And one of the things I learned there was when you do a documentary, the focus on someone. Someone pick a, a, a point of view or focus and stick with them so you have, begin to have a beginning, a middle, and end. When I got to California, 
there was this guy in an office of the VBAW zooming back and forth, and they were organizing this trip across the United States to protest the Vietnam War at the uh, Republican Convention. I guess that was 72. I saw this dynamo in a wheelchair going from one side of the room to the other, answering phones, giving orders, and I said, I'm focusing on him. No, that was how I met Ron. Catherine had a, had a boyfriend, Tom, I forget his last name. She followed him for the most of the trip. And then we switched off. I followed him sometimes, too. But we had two main characters. We were going to see what happened to so them, whether they got arrested or... And, and Ron got into the convention center and actually uh, confronted... Uh, I think Agnew was speaking. And then they used that footage of mine and the, and the video freaks. They, they were inside the hall. They gave me that black and white footage. They, Oliver came to me uh, years later and said, uh, like 79, and he said he wanted to make the end of Born on the Fourth of July my documentary. So I agreed to that, and then I worked on the film with him as an advisor and actor. You said you lived at the Chelsea Hotel for a while when you're in New York. Is that kind of where you got involved with uh, women in revolt? I knew it. You know, I used to hang out in matches. Mickey Rush didn't like me. He liked me because I was a veteran. Well, some people. I used to have a charge account there, so I used to eat dinner there a lot and come in late, you know, after midnight and sit at the tables with Andy and people. And uh, so I, I knew him. And, uh, oh, I I was working with a guy named C.T. Louie, designing his video stuff and helping him stuff. Everybody was getting into Sony Porter packs then. I, I don't know if you remember that. A lot of people in... Um, we're going to the New York State Council on the Arts and getting grants, and I, I was two at the time, or soon after. So Andy wanted one. So I, I brought one to him, and uh, so we, we bought it. And then I said, Andy, I want I, 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 you never want me in the film. So let me say film. He says, oh, you want to be in one of my movies? I said, sure. He said, sure, of course. So we uh, came Women in Revolt. I played that small part in there. But it was, it was quite dramatic. Uh, what's her name? Uh, Jackie Curtis. Jackie hit me in the head. She took my hat. I was playing the construction order. And she slammed it right into my head really hard. And I ended up chasing her down the street. The police came. And Andy and, and, and Paul Marcy just split. They just left. And so the police confronted me. Where was my permit? I said, what? I don't know. And the, by that time, the cameras had run away. The police were confronting me about shooting this movie. And by the time I, I looked around, there was no more movie happening. Andy and Paul were in a limbo. They got away. Jackie kept running and went back to the loft or the, you know, that place that Andy had on, on Washington, on Union Square. And so I, I walked back there, too. And uh, then he shot another scene of Jackie giving me an enema, but I've never seen that. But uh, that's how I got in that movie. And that's when I, I did that. So, And then... uh. He was always friendly with me. He, he, someone interviewed him. Proctor's uh, interviewed him. It was a book called Andy Warhol. And he said, oh, yeah, I like Frank. But I think he should have been a homosexual. I've always felt that way. <laughs> so, but I liked Andy. I used to talk to him on the phone. And uh, I definitely, you know, I, I, I thought he was swell. I, I saw him. At, I, there's a picture of me uh, kissing him on the cheek. Uh, someone took a Polaroid off. I forget who has it. But anyway. That was, you know, I was. I, I told Diva that he passed away. She, we were down in Mexico together, 
Viva, where our Joe Lachuda is here, Patsy Cummings' house in, uh, in Mexico, where we used to go every year at Christmas time. I know someone called or something and said, Andy died there. So I said, but we got to tell Viva, she's down on the beach. She was down in there painting. I went down and, you know, it was really tough to stay. What have been some of your favorite roles over the years? Well, I just played a, a fun role in a, in a weird movie. It's about uh, Elvis Presley coming back to space. As some alien, and I didn't believe that storyline. But I played a CIA agent in a bunker deep in the heart of Las Vegas, following him because he was now some alien uh, being. And it was a, a goofy sort of movie, but it was so much fun just sitting there and doing like seven pages of dialogue narrating this film. That, that was good. I, I played Marlon Brando in the play, and that was really great. It's online, you can look it up. It's called Last Tangle with Marlon. You can, I, I, you can either, either it's on YouTube, parts of it, or put that name in. It'll, it'll come up on Amazon. And I played Marlon Brando, Ralph Morrow, who I went to American Academy with, and I knew looked like him, played uh, his good friend Wally Cox. And the weird thing is, the night I opened that play, Brando's kid killed himself. And, and the last line in the play is, Oh, Christian, come on in. He knocks at the door. I came off stage and there was, oh, it was great. You know, Christian just died. I said, what? I was so spooky. You know what I mean? But that was, I think, I think playing Brandon was really my favorite role. And uh, I thought, well, I guess my acting career is over. I've done everything I wanted to do with it. And then, and then I, I got three or four cameras together and we taped it. So you can look at it. It's, it's, it's what it is. I didn't try to. You know, I, I know people who knew Brando well, like Jack Blossom, and, uh, who was a good friend of Monty Cliffs, and they said, you know, Brando talked like you and I. He didn't talk weird or anything like that. That was all as acting. I didn't I didn't affect that kind of, you know, I could have been, you know, the uh, champ or something. You know, I could have been somebody, you know, like that. I didn't do that kind of thing, which is which was his acting, because he could do anything and make it sellable. So I just played it like an ordinary person doing this. But uh, the play sort of alludes to the fact that he's very, very screwed up about his kids and his life, and he's drinking a lot, and he's any he suicidal. Tell me about acting on the web. I and uh, a writer friend of mine, Michael Elias, thought that would be a, a good idea about, well, it's been about 14 years ago, when the web started that that we'd, we'd like to farm out, and, you know, people are, and also I took a trip across the country, and Kids seem bored, you know, they'd be in little towns and stuff, and there wouldn't be acting classes like it would be in L.A. or New York. I thought I could teach it online, because I had, I had instructed a few of my actor friends, if they were in a jam, when they were, you know, shooting in Toronto or something, you know, you talk to them late at night, they didn't understand the complexities of this or that, or how to do a scene or something, and you could, you know, talk to them, and then the next day they call back and say, oh, it worked, Frank, what you said it really worked. So I said, well, if I could do that, why can't I do it with videotape? So we put it up, but it got complex because at the time, we, there wasn't a film and things like that, and it was really hard to... I, I got people sending me tapes after a while. Uh, 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On a disc, but it was hard to download, you know, five minutes of video at the time. It isn't so much now. But the other thing I found out, and I had customers all over the world. I had them in India, and Hong Kong, and South America, and Germany, and, and, and Sweden, and England. You know, they'd be, generally the age group was from like 11 to 25, and then people who were retired and wanted to play at acting, which they never did, or they had, you know, three grown kids already, I think, they wanted to do a scene and see if they had any jobs. Never really made a lot of money. At first, I had it free, and then I started charging just to get on the site. But what I found out in the end is uh, people, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't, they wanted to act, but they really didn't want to study acting for a long time or really study it. Because I'd say to people, well, you got to do another scene. Oh, another one. They, they think it's like one. I mean, I studied acting for years with Harry Master. I studied with him almost 10 years. And, and it's, you know, they act a studio. They don't go there like one time. You go there the rest of your life, you know? So I found out that people really didn't... They wanted to have an agent before they even knew how to read a script. You know, it was, they, they, and, and it discouraged me after a while because they were so... You know, they, they weren't true believers. And it, it, acting is all, almost a, a vocation, not a, a, an occupation. you got to be devoted to it. And, and uh, if any... Lee Strasberg said, if any... Anything can stop you, let it. Otherwise, it can't, it can't be stopped. It's sort of there. I, I may revise it as I get on in years here if I want to spend more time with it. Because I did like encouraging people, even if there was one or two a day. I like talking to them. You know, I saved some people. You know, they wanted not to quit school or do that, come out here. Or one woman wanted to fly out here and spend close to $2,000 on photographs for her son. And then she lived in New Orleans. I said, don't be ridiculous. First of all, if children are auditioning, they usually take a Polaroid because in a year, the kid's going to look entirely different. And most, most casting agencies for kids don't really demand a headshot because, you know, a 7-year-old, 11-year-old does not look like a 13-year-old. And they use the Polaroid because they want you then, now. Anyway, I, I I was very helpful to people. I had one guy who thought of he's leaving law school somewhere in Colorado, wondering if he should pay fourteen ninety five or whatever I was charging for the site. And the judge get off law school there, there and then he did he do you don't want to pay me fifteen dollars, but you're gonna give up law school and come to LA and act? Did he get out of your mind? I said, Spend the fifteen dollars and let me tell you if you're not a a rat chance in hell of making anything of yourself here. And then maybe uh, 
quit law school. But that's a very foolish idea. Finish law school, you can do it. I know plenty of people who have law degrees who are actors. I knew a judge who became an actor. So that's the acting on web. I, I, I still think it's a good idea. Uh, when I started it, there were only about four or five sites about acting. Now there's probably a hundred five. But uh, I, 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 I've been lately. I've been writing uh, some scripts and uh, short stories. I have a, a movie with the um, Path Jones Entertainment called uh, Hard Ride, which is about a black rodeo cowboy, modern day black rodeo cowboy who inherits uh, a 12-year-old son, a uh, 15-year-old son, whatever you want to make him, who hates him because he left him. You know, he abandoned him in Philadelphia with the mother. The mother died violently, and the kid has to live with her dad, who is now a non-smoking, non-cursing Christian cowboy, which he can't buy at all, because kids from a, a Baltimore or Philadelphia ghetto. So we've been trying to get that out for years, and I, I don't know what's happening with that. I got some other movie ideas about the Booth family. Uh, I've been writing short stories about about things I'm talking to you about. My next one is going to be about Night with the Rolling Stones and how that went down. You're going to collect them and kind of put them out as a memoir? Well, I don't know. I've got four of them now. One of them is about a race riot that took place, uh, or about to take place, in, in my neighborhood growing up in Queens, that one cop settled. He settled the whole thing. And I thought I was about good police work, you know what I mean? And everybody backed off. The other thing is about my experience with Governor Nelson Rockefeller, where I, I took him into a bathroom at NBC and took the makeup off his face. He gratefully said that downstairs, I had spent the day with him. I was at an NBC page at the time. He gratefully said, you know what? Chuck off. It's just a young Kavisani kid calls uh, at a time. Uh, well, let's help him out. So it cuts about eight years later. I'm trying to get a New York State Council on the Arts Grant. They're snowing me. They're jerking me around this way, that way, you know, not calling me for the meetings. I'm not really a video artist, blah, blah, blah. So I write the governor a letter. Now I realize this, what some of the implications were, that I spent time in the bathroom with him as a young man. But I didn't think of it in those days like that. I thought you said you'd help me. I need your help. Well, man, they called me in. I, the, the Russell Connors, who was giving up, giving up grants, I felt bad for him. I don't know if he's alive or not, but anyway, he was shaking. He was literally shaking. He called me in the back room at the New York State House in the office. Frank, we didn't know you were first offended governor. Of course you're going to get a grant. <laughs> and, then, and then we talked a little bit more, and then they, uh, we, we went towards the door, and he looked at me and said, Frank, is everything okay? I thought he was going to cry. I felt so bad for him. I mean, he was a nervous wreck. You know what I mean? He, he's like someone jacked him up. And I, I thought, I didn't want to do that because I like Russell. He's a decent guy. But they were just not considering me because they had all these other people there. And uh, they, they had their own influences one way or the other. And so, anyway, I, I started doing video uh, at that time and uh, had a show at Museum of Modern Art and of other places around the country as well. I'm, I'm actually going to go through my videotape collection now, and I'm transferring them over to digital, giving some of them to a place in Chicago called Media Burn. I got some, so I got some stuff inside the World Trade Center while it was being built, where I asked a guy, what's that wall for? He said, well, that's a 12-foot wall, and I looked on the other side. He said, the Hudson River. I said, what if someone blew that up? He said, well, the this building, which was uh, one of the, those uh, towers uh, that got blown up, would fall into the Hudson River. <laughs> and actually, in 93, they actually tried to blow up that wall 
but it was so thick that they that they blew into the basement rather than the wall, and the car went down, the truck, the van went down. So I got that, and I got I got a play called All That Glitters with Candy Darling and uh, Jackie Curtis, and in the audience is uh, Andy Warhol, John Lennon, Yoko, and Ultraviolet, and so uh, I I got them on a nice piece of tape. So. And there's other things I have. I have a, I have a, a real Sundance with uh, the Lakota Sioux and uh, different things. I don't, I don't even remember. After. And and hopefully it'll all transfer. Because there's a guy here in Los Angeles, uh, DC Video in Burbank, and they actually have to bake these tapes, heat them up, so they don't, uh, so they, they they start sticking together. And uh, some of them are not stable. But anyway, I'm going to do that this year. Now, I know Brand X was lost for a lot of years, and it kind of started making rounds again over the last couple. Have you had a chance to check out any of the screenings and see it again? Yeah, they screened it here, and I was there, and I spoke at that screening. I have Sally Kirkland. I I was on stage with Sally Kirkland, and <laughs> people had a question. And, you know, I felt like a movie star for a day. And, 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 and also, I thought I was surprised how funny I was. It was, it was the scene with uh, uh, that, that heavy girl, what's her name, Sally, uh, or something like that. The heavy nurse scene where I chased her around. The room was funny like that where she chased me. It's hysterically funny. It's like Chaplinette. It's great. I didn't think I was that good. <laughs> so I, I was very pleased with it. And, you know, some of the other stuff, you know, the stuff I did was pretending I'm Gino. Uh, that, that was, uh, I actually knew a guy like that. And, uh, he ended up on The Sopranos as Paulie. That's how I was imitating. That's the name of that tune. I'm glad you asked me because this, this reminds me of my life. I <laughs> some of it, you know, how it is. Hello, I'm Dr. Joshua Frank. I'm a chemist for Old Colonial, and I'd like to show you something. See this small tan-colored pile that looks like brown sugar? This is natural dope. The reason it is brown is that it has not been properly refined. Now, see this other pile. This is pure white dope. The dope that has taken old Colonial almost 200 years to develop. Colonial has grown with America. It sailed with the clipper ship captains and soon will be flying to the moon. Good dope is extremely difficult to make. It takes the know-how of trained specialists to bring you the real thing. Here at Old Colonial, dope is not just a product. It is a way of life. Why, all over the world, our agents constantly search for and gather the very finest ingredients which are scientifically processed and packaged by Colonial. Thanks to Mr. Chamberlain and Mr. Cavastani for coming on the show. You can find out more about them and Brand X at our website, projection-booth.com. So this week, we are talking about Brand X. Now, this is an interesting film, Mike, because... It was lost, I guess, for a while, wasn't it? And the version that even we were looking at in terms of the screener copy that I referenced in the early part of the film was based on one of the few known uh, prints that were available. And it was, I guess, a 16-millimeter print, and it was a little beat up, and they went in and they restored it and cleaned up the soundtrack and all that stuff. Like Sam was saying, they're definitely working on doing the restoration of this thing, which I am really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to more than just, you know, 
people like you and me seeing this. I mean, it has screened quite a few places. Um, I think having, like you were saying, like having Q and A's afterwards, or maybe even having you know Q and A's before would probably help out with something like this because it is just kind of capturing that zeitgeist so much. So I think definitely. Um, you know, having a, a an audio track to explain some things, or the subtitles, or this kind of stuff, is going to help when it comes to what's happening in this movie. And it's so funny because I'm treating this thing like it's a foreign film or it's some ancient relic or something like that. But it's just it, it 45 years and a world away in terms of culture and politics and history going on at this particular time it it really makes a difference you know it might sound like i'm being you know some ignorant snobby kid from you know the the early 2000s or whatever but i just uh, there were times where i was just like i'm sure that this would make more sense if i knew more about this stuff and um you know, it kind of felt like every once in a while when I'm watching Rocky and Bullwinkle and they'll make a joke and I'm just like, I bet that that has something to do with what was happening at the time, but don't really get it. So I get the timeless jokes, you know, the Ruby out of Omar Khayyam kind of stuff, but not necessarily the things that were speaking directly to the day. Well, the one that I said earlier, you know, I, I doubt the inevitable will ever happen. You know, it's like that kind of stuff is like Marx Brothers humor that to me, that's why I can watch Duck Soup. And even though it's like almost 90 years old, 80 years old, I can just enjoy it because it's got, it has so many elements that are, are universal and not necessarily pinned into uh, the Great Depression and the time in which it was created. The one for me that was kind of my, I don't know, my uh, my dipstick when it came to humor kind of stuff was watching the old Warner Brothers cartoons. And obviously, so much of that humor is very, very broad and, you know, universal, you know, Elmer Fudd trying to catch uh, Bugs Bunny, that kind of stuff. Got it. I'm good to go. But then every once in a while, man, they'll make a joke and it's just like, what the hell was that? You know, and, and over the years, I've kind of figured out more as it's going along, you know, as I'm living more and understanding more and reading more. But like, you know, the episode, the cartoon with Bugs Bunny and the Gremlin, and I think it's that cartoon where he's got a sticker I can't remember if it's that one or not now, but there's a sticker in one of the windows and it says A, and then they switch it. So, you know, the gremlin or whoever switches it to like a D sticker. And I'm just like, for years and years, I had no idea what that meant. And then finally, it's like, oh, that was like the gas rationing kind of stuff. Or there's another one where there's a, a guy who was Bob Hope's like sidekick, Jerry Kalana. And at one point, there's a cartoon where Daffy Duck is going in and putting mustaches on everyone, painting mustaches on everyone, and he's on trial. And the jury says that he's not guilty, and they look over, and it's 12 Jerry Kalanas, and they go, Ah, yes, not guilty. For 30, 40 years, I had no idea what that meant. And then finally, I read about Jerry Kalana, and it's like, okay. Now it makes total sense. Now I know who this bug-eyed, mustachioed guy was. Yeah. Finally, I can catch up to a cartoon from 60 years ago. Well, there was a similar with that. Um, I remember there was one, and I can't remember if it was Warner Brothers or not, but there was all these people of the day. 
who were caricatured and, and, and they did impersonations of them and they're interacting with the characters. And I'm just like, I don't even know who half these people are. Like, I know that's, I know that's Bogart. I know that's the Marx brothers. I'm like, I have no idea who that is. Like, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, like of its era and of its time, if you saw it when it came out, you're going to know, you know, but I think even people who would watch this, who, you know, I, I think, I hate doing this because it, it makes it it can make us sound a little snobby, but I think that people who are of our age and didn't have parents who were like tuned into the '60s like my my dad was, you know. So I knew who Abby Hoffman was. I knew who the Yippies were. I knew a lot of this stuff, you know. So watching this, I go, oh, okay, I I know who that is, and it's funny that Abby Hoffman's playing a cop. Which is funny because of you know Chicago Seven and the sixty eighth you know Democratic Convention and all that stuff. I mean that's funny to you know to a certain extent. But if you have no idea who that is right. and why it's Abby Hoffman and why he's playing a cop, it's gonna you're just gonna be like I just wasted five minutes of my life that I'm never getting back because uh-huh. I'm confused and I have no idea what that is. So I think if you're a little more attuned to that era, like I said, if you've read stuff or you've seen other things and you, you can pick up on stuff. But even like I said, even I feel like I'm, I'm missing some things in here, too. I know it's going to sound dumb, but I've always wanted somebody to write a very scholarly tome about the Warner Brothers cartoons and explain that kind of stuff. You know, have those, to me, hidden jokes kind of explained. And more than anything, kind of talk about the behind the scenes of making these things, you know. And, like, I I would love stuff like that. And I would love something like that about Brand X, where it just really kind of explains more of what we're seeing and those references and all that kind of stuff. Just because, yeah, like you, I knew who Abby Hoffman was. But I didn't really have that much of a tuned in mom when it came to this stuff. So it's like, I'm finding out who Jerry Rubin and these guys and Abby Hoffman and, you know, the lifting of the Pentagon through psychic powers and stuff when I'm in college. And, you know, I'm supposed to be studying other stuff, but it's like going through the, um, you know, the, the used bookstores and seeing steal this book and all this stuff. It's like, okay, picking this stuff up because it looks interesting and trying to get my fill of the counterculture. And it's like, I didn't necessarily have a class in uh, counterculture <laughs> at any point. <laughs> well, we can go back even a little further and pull up someone like uh, Terry Jones of Monty Python. Mm-hmm. He's done documentaries. And I believe he's written a book on this where he, he's a Chaucer scholar. So the Canterbury Tales, he knows it well. And he says, there are jokes in there. He goes, Canterbury Tales is hilarious. He goes, but the problem is that we don't know what the jokes are today. <laughs> and I remember him like in an interview explaining why certain things were funny and would be funny to somebody who's reading the Canterbury Tales when it first came out in, what, 1300s or something? <laughs> and he's just like, he's like, we're not going to get that. He goes, because we don't, it's been 700 years and we don't know what that is, you know? But he goes, if you, you were around in the 1300s or the 1400s or whenever it came out, he's like, you, you'd be on the floor. you know. So it's kind of the same thing. I don't think it's as bad where we watch it and go, there's no humor in this at all. I just think that it, you, know, you really need to come with it, with some background in order to really get your fill of it. And at times even I feel that way about a film that I love and we've done on the show, Putney Swope. 
because I could show Putney Swope to people and they would get the references to, you know, just the absurdism of the situation. Like they've, the, the absurdist humor of the car, of the commercials, the absurdist nature of, you know, the, the reversal of an all white company with one token black guy to an all black company with a token white guy, but they're not going to get all this stuff about black militants. They're not going to get the whole thing about the Arab who's in there played by Antonio Fargas. They're not going to get like, like there's a lot of things in Putney Swope that are of their era as well. Uh, and I, and I'm sure there are things in there that I'm not even getting, but it's absurdist enough for me that I enjoy it. I mean, when you look at something like Brand X and Putney Swope, it really is the forerunner of things like Saturday Night Live and the fake commercials that were in that show when that started 40 years ago. So you see sort of the roots of that in films like this. And I think from that aspect, it's interesting because you can sort of see how advertising and advertising satire sort of evolves. Because to me, advertising satire has always been interesting. As far back as I was a little kid, I mean, Mad Magazine or, um, you know, I, I had friends I was talking about this on Facebook Recently, uh, the the wacky packs packages that Art Spiegelman drew back in the '60s and '70s. The idea of of taking advertising culture, something that's so ubiquitous and in your face all the time, and twisting it and basically throwing the finger back at it, has always been interesting to me. I've always had an interest in skewing, you know, the expectations of what we have around us. And, and I think that in a way you find that in here, like I said, with the body odor ad and the dirt ad being the reversals of soap and, you know, deodorant ads and, you know, all of that idea of, of inversion and subversion for trying to make a point for trying to, you know, get you to think about what people are throwing at you all the time. Yeah, I've always been fascinated by that, too. And again, it's like seeing the wacky packages when I was a kid. It's like I got some of them, not necessarily all of them, but I can never look at a you know package of Old Spice without thinking of Old Spit. So turning those images and catchphrases and names of products on their heads are things that you know have stuck with me over the years. You know, things like, you know, the Rolling Stones selling out and doing uh hey hey you you let go my ego like those kind of things that they did on saturday night live it's like okay you know they they last for me almost longer than the products all right we are going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show うん。この子を家まで送ってくからね。車代もらっとけよ。あんたたちのためにいってるのよ。今ぐらいの年で傷つくと傷跡がいつまでも残るわよ。それは姉さんが思い切って行動しなかったから。
確かに僕たちは社会を変えるという情熱に精神を燃やしてきたしかしぶつかってもぶつかっても壁は壊れない Did you get all that? Of course she did. It's Oshima's Cruel Story of Youth. We'll be discussing the film with Japanese New Wave expert and our guest co host, Miguel Rodriguez, on the next episode of the Projection Booth. So we want to thank our guests who came on today to talk to us about Brand X, Sam Chamberlain. And Frank Cavastani for coming by and talking to us about Brand X. Of course, you can go to projection booth.com, find out all about this week's episode, links to where you can find out more about the film, and、uh, some of the other shows that we discussed as well, including Putty Swope and、uh, other sort of, I guess, media satires that we've done on the show, because we've done a couple of them, Mike. And I would also advise,、uh, if、uh, you're so inclined, to、uh, take this limited time offer and go to iTunes and give us. You know, maybe four stars. Maybe you can tack on a fifth one if possible. And、um, give us a review. Let folks know. Share it through your social media that、uh, you're listening to the projection booth. And we also have the free app out there for basically any mobile device that you may have under the sun, any particular platform. So you can get all that when you go to iTunes. And、uh, please help spread the word, the great good gospel of the projection booth. And,、um, you know, remember listen more, think less.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.